This is the Dealer News Today podcast, the podcast for automotive executives and the professionals who support them. Well, hey there, folks, and welcome to Dealer News Today. Glad to have you with us. You know, we are well underway into season five. This is episode four, but we got plenty of past episodes and seasons packed with great information about the dealership automotive world from a ton of great industry professionals. Just go to dealernewstoday.com to listen to any of those past episodes and follow DNT on social media. At Dealer News Today is where you'll find it. I am your host, Derek D. To find out more about me, you can do that at derekd.com. But right now, we're going to find out a lot more about my next guest. He's got over 20 years in investment research experience, and he's not tied to any brand or automotive company. So what you hear is an unbiased view. He's the global director of automotive research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Please welcome Kevin Tynan to the show. Thanks for coming on Dealer News today. Kevin, how are you? It is absolutely my pleasure. Yeah, appreciate you being on. So first, wh- uh, where are you from? I am from Queens, New York. All right, Queens. And I uh, uh, moved out to Long Island. I went to college in New Hampshire. Oh, then I went to Texas and Florida and wound up back in New York. And then here I am in Princeton, New Jersey right now. Oh, okay. So you live so you live in New York, but you're in Princeton right now? No, I live in New Jersey now. Um I was working down on Wall Street covering the auto industry from about 1999 till uh, 2009. And uh, when when I got recruited to come to Bloomberg, the job was in our office. So I relocated, which was great because uh, I had about an hour and 40 minutes door to door from Long Island on the railroad out uh, down into uh, downtown Wall Street. Yeah, I know all about that. And now I got an 8.1 mile drive with one traffic light between me. Oh. And the <laughs> <laughs> Can't beat that. So, so I'm in Jersey too. You're directly west from me. I live uh, right in Belmar, New Jersey, right by oh, the nice. beach. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, you know, back and forth to the city as well, but not as much lately. Yeah, me too. Uh, so it's 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 a lot easier. Um, so yeah, so uh, just just curious because of me, and I saw this. You're in your college athletic hall of fame. What's yeah. that for? Yeah, I was a I was a basketball <laughs> player. Oh, awesome! I'm like a five ten basketball player, but I was um, uh, I played at St. Anselm College, which is in Manchester, New Hampshire. And, oh, cool! Um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to play in the NBA or Europe, so I took uh, I signed in you know October of my senior year in high school, the whole full boat, the whole thing, and it you know it was wow. top top twenty Division two school like. Uh, the last year before the pandemic, 2019 or 2018, they went to the Elite Eight, which was in Evansville, Indiana. Oh, that's um, awesome. Made it to the round of four. Uh, so really good ball over the years. I figured they were my last four years of playing. And so I went up to uh, I went up to New Hampshire. I was, you know, second in the nation assist per game. We had some real good players. So when all was said and done, we had two conference championships. I had the assist record. Uh, had done some good stuff and they, they, they put me in the hall of fame, which was a great, yeah, that's awesome, man. I'm, you know, I'm a sports guy. I'm not a big uh, basketball guy, but, uh, I always, uh, I was curious about that. That's super cool. I'm a big football guy. I'm a Giants fan. I don't know if you're a Giants fan or Jets. I saw that yesterday. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Football season is here. Those are some crazy games. And that Giants game was, was pretty intense, but it was awesome at the same time. (laughs) Um, all right, you know I could talk football all day, but we're gonna jump into uh, why we're here and you and so you got you got twenty years in uh, investment research, twenty years in investment research. I believe you began as an equity analyst. 
You have a BS in business, an MBA in finance from St. John's University. So, and your title now, Global Director of Automotive Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. So answer me this for our listeners. What is that exactly? Like, what does your job entail and what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, so so I, I when I came out of grad school, I had a... I, I believe it or not, I was I was working on a uh, Pepperidge Farm bread route, paying my way through graduate school. Wow. And um, uh, when I when I finished, I, I got a call to come to a, a sell side research firm on Wall Street. And I went there and they gave me basic materials. I was covering paper companies and metals companies. And I kept stealing the auto guy's mail out of his mail. That was back in the day. Or like. <laughs> email and you would actually ha- get reports sent to, to the office. And I would take the guy's mail every morning. He would come in and be like, you got my mail. I'd give it to him. <laughs> and this was right around the time of the 99 tech bubble. So he wanted to go cover tech and said, well, give, give Tyne in the auto stuff. He's got all my mail anyway. So uh, that was it. Once I got autos, I had always been a car guy when I, you know, a million. Oh, so that's how you initially auto, got into yeah, the, like the that, car. You know, a million Hot Wheels and Matchbox cars. And, and uh, you know, it, it's funny you say that not to cut you off, but I ask all my guests if they're a, a car guy or car girl or not. So, oh, yeah. you know, it sounds like you are, but uh, I'm a big car guy myself. Oh, yeah, I, I always was. Uh, like now I have, you know, a lift in the garage. I do all my own work. I, oh, I that's awesome. I restore my, my father can't change a light bulb. And, uh, but you know, YouTube is great. (laughs) Yeah. You can learn anything (laughs) on there. So, uh, so anyway, so, so I had worked there and really the turning point for me was about, so I, so even there on, on, on the sell side, I'm doing equity research on the auto industry suppliers and the, and the manufacturers. And, you know, in simple terms, you're just making stock calls on what's going on with, with the industry and with the automakers. And I remember it was probably late uh it was it was first quarter about 2005 and gm came out and had a really bad earnings call like first quarter earnings call Mm. and i said you know this is it i said these companies just you know just from a just looking at the balance sheet and the income statement you're going like this just is not sustainable so i came out in early 05 and said chrysler at the time it was chrysler for general motors they're all bankrupt could be a year could be five years could be 10 years this cost structure is not sustainable. Everybody called me crazy and some words I can't probably say. Um, <laughs> and and then, you know, by the end of that year, I think General Motors had gone from about $90 a share to 20. Whoa. Right. So, so I'm the top stock picker and like, uh, and, and not to drop names, I had actually had Malcolm Gladwell call me and be like, Hey, can we have lunch? And I, and at the end, I didn't really know who he was. I just, I only care about the auto industry. So he had just done his first book, I guess. And I didn't, everybody's going to, for those who don't know listening, who, who, who is that? So he had written, I think at the time he had just come out with his first book, which I believe was the tipping point. Oh, okay. Uh, so he, but he introduced himself to me as a writer from the New Yorker magazine and so, which wasn't uncommon, right? You know, we would do CNBC sure. or Bloomberg television or speak to automotive news or whatever, you know, so, uh, so he comes in for lunch. And at the end, after I knew who he was, because one of my colleagues was like, do you, do you know who that guy is? He's got the number one bestseller or whatever. And I said, oh, that's cool. So I said, well, why'd you call me? There's all these big name analysts on the street. And he goes, you're the only one talking about 
bankruptcy as inevitable. And he goes, and I, and I agree with you. So we had, we had a nice time, oh, wow. really nice guy. And, and so from there, um, I wound up being right. You know, it was, it wound up being <laughs> four years later that General Motors and, and Chrysler wound up in bankruptcy and Ford just missed by taking down like 26 billion in debt right before the, the credit markets froze up. And then Bloomberg was starting their own in-house equity research department, which is now called Bloomberg Intelligence. At the time, it was called Bloomberg Industries. And they, they kind of called me up and said, hey, we want somebody to start this up. You seem like a, a guy that would do it. And, and, uh, and how long have you been at that position? So 13 years now. So, oh, okay. so when Bloomberg Intelligence started, I was probably the third or fourth analyst to join. And now it's probably 500 people in this department. Oh, wow. I mean, that's, yeah. yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty big. Jeez. Yeah. You're, you're on the yeah. ground floor. And, and Bloomberg overall, you know, with sales and all the multimedia, the television news, it's probably 20,000 employees. Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's funny because you were just talking about, um, you know, how the, the, the menu, those manufacturers, you were seeing that, Hey, they're going to go bankrupt. And you saw this kind of before it happened. So dealerships obviously across the board are seeing record profits right now. Do you think that's, gonna be the new normal i don't think it will be but or is this kind of like that like it's a it's it's a bubble right now that's gonna burst at some point and, and it's gonna come back down no i don't i so here's the thing first of all the the manufacturers are controlling they control everything right for lack of a better phrase sure um by controlling the output and we've the industry has finally gotten to a time where okay yeah darn chip shortage but you know, we typically would have to put this in context, context, 4 million inventory unit pre-pandemic, 4 million units of inventory on the ground rolling every month. Okay. Roughly a good month would be 1.5 million sales transactions. So you have 4 million units for 1.5 million transactions. Um, and that's where okay. incentives, cash incentives, lease incentives. Uh, right, because you have so many cars, you got to right, get them out the right. door. So now you have, because your fixed cost structure as a manufacturer was so high, you're just jamming inventory on your dealerships. Figure out how to sell this. Throw money at the problem. Um, then bankruptcy comes. A lot of those costs get rationalized. Uh, and over the years, that continued post you know, 2010, 11, 12 continuing to rationalize costs pandemic comes right you close factories you take people out and now we're to a point where just august we had 1.3 million units of inventory on the ground for you know 1.1 million sales so we're at hmm. we were at like a it would go as high as three and a half times the number of units that were sold in the month on the ground to now being one to one and so the yeah. industry is finally, and this is after decades, finally in balance between supply and demand. So huh. not to say that it can't go back or that it is in a bubble, but nobody wants, I shouldn't say nobody, the manufacturers don't want it to go back. Right. The dealers don't want it to go back. And to me, just those two parties alone, that's what matters, right? What the consumer wants doesn't matter. Not only that, Derek, what I would say is, Think about this, right? And, and let me give you context on inventory. So what that meant was that the average dealer would have, let's say the average dealer would sell 10 Ford Explorers in a month. They would have okay. 35. And what I'm saying is that that wasn't good for everybody, right? The dealer was paying floor plan, carrying costs. Um, 
same for the manufacturer, right? We got to produce more and send you more. Well, you don't have the space for it. In- incentivize those 10,000 cash back, whatever. The- just Yeah, get rid of them. Right. So now what we have is balance. So where's the motivation to go back to that? And not only that, hmm. in 2016 was the best year in auto sales for the U.S. history, 17.5 million. Average transaction price was $35,000, just a little bit below $35,000. We're running at like a 13 million, way, way off. Average transaction price is about 47,000. So the actual pool of money is the same, right? The, The retail revenue pool is the same, but we're doing it without when, when we had, um, 17.5 17.5 million units, the average discount from MSRP was six and a half percent, roughly $2,500, meaning you'd walk into a dealer, point to the window, go, I want $2,500 off that, no question asked, done deal. Then the manufacturer was giving you 10% of the transaction price back in cash or low rate financing or whatever it was just to get that deal done because that dealer had three and a half times as many Ford Explorers as they needed. Right. One to one. Average transaction price is actually above MSRP. Yeah. Incentives have gone from 10% to below 2%. Yeah. Incentives like barely exist right now. Right. So now, again, not to say that it can't happen or it can't go back, but the, the parties that are pulling the strings, basically in the form of supply, don't want it to go back. Because they realize it doesn't need to in their it eyes. It doesn't need to. Right. And not only that, right. Keep this in mind, too. In that, in that shift from $35,000 average transaction price in 2016 to $47,000 now, cars, a lot of car nameplates are dead. No Malibu, no uh, Impala, no Taurus, no Focus, no Fusion, right? Killed. No more Passat. Right, yeah. right. Like so, so, like, um, so General Motors' best-selling car is Corvette. That's a $75,000 car. Right. Yeah, but you, yeah, but if you, I love the new C8, but right. seventy five thousand. You, if you if you even get one, it's over a hundred grand. Right. MSRP. Right. Same thing, Ford. Right. Best selling cars, Mustang. They only sell two, Mustang and Ford GT, and that's it. So mm-hmm. the idea that we could even go back to that volume is just not possible. Right. Business economics one hundred and one. What the amount you could sell at thirty five thousand is significantly more than what you can sell at forty seven thousand. So what I've been telling people is. Not only is it not likely that we go back to 17 million units at $35,000, it's not even possible. We don't make those products anymore. Yeah. Right? Ford's average mm-hmm. transaction price is up in the 50,000s, right? 52 to 55,000. That used to be where Mercedes and BMW lived. Now they live at 67. Jeez. Right? So so we couldn't get that volume back <clears throat> because the products that would get us there don't exist anymore. Yeah. I mean that that's pretty crazy and and I I what you're saying makes makes so much sense. You know, we we're talking about the inventory shortage, but and I I've even said this on the show before to dealerships being like I don't think you guys want to go back to having so many cars on the lot, you know? And what would you say to a dealership who who kind of still has that mind frame? Like, oh, once once the inventory shortage ends, you know, we got to get as many cars back here as we can. Because things are done differently now. People are buying online or whether they just, yeah. you know, order the car online, go pick it up at the dealership or order from, you know, completely not a dealership at all. You know, things are changing, I think, because COVID and the pandemic really brought a lot of this to light. But what would you say to a dealership that says, let's go back to the old way, get as many cars on the lot? Well, I think, look, I, I think that's a very dangerous uh, wish 
because that process was horrible. I, and I'm not exaggerating. We're like, we have an, uh, you know, in-house chat for car enthusiasts here at Bloomberg. And I get in arguments with people all the time. People hate dealerships, right? And I'm, Oh, and they still got that. A lot of them still have that old ass oh, printer and I'm defending, that you got to go in that room. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I wind up defending the dealerships. Right. And I'm saying like, first of sure. all, you want to walk into a dealership and this is me as a consumer, right? I want to walk into a dealership and I want to pay what I want to pay. And I'm going to take all the profit away from the dealer. And then when the dealer and, and granted, right. I, you know, I don't want them doing shady things to me, but when the, when the dealer tries to claw back some profit, you know, then, then you're going to crucify him for being, you know, like, Oh, you know, uh, what are you doing? You know, I, why doesn't everybody pay the same price? So I think, the dealers really have to adjust and there, and there's great potential in this, right? If mm-hmm. this, you know, Oh, and the other one I get is, Oh, the dealer is just the middleman doesn't add any value to the process. Right. And that mindset, the dealers have to change that mindset of the consumer. And I'm going everywhere you go, everything you buy, you buy from a middleman, right? You don't buy your milk from the cow or the farmer, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You Very go true. to the grocery store, right? And they can do whatever they want to you. And then they'll say, well, but everybody pays the same price, at least for that gallon of milk. And I'll go fine. Next time you go to a dealership, walk in, and, and this is kind of, I think people would be happy for this now, but if this were pre-2020, walk into a dealership, point at the window sticker and go, I'll pay that. They'll sit you in a chair, they'll hand you a pen, you'll sign a piece of paper, you'll be out the door. But you want to fight them for that six and a half percent that you think you're owed, plus all your incentives. And then you complain that they try and keep you there to because they need to they need to make something on the transaction. Nobody cried for the dealers when they were making no money on new vehicles, when gross margin, gross margin on new vehicles under five percent. Right. So now in this world where supply is limited, I would say there there can be an industry at MSRP at retail, I mean. Uh, but the process has to improve, right? Well, for sure. But what do you think about some of these dealerships that realize that, look, you know, in- inventory is low, you know, high demand. We're, this is the MSRP, but we're we're jacking it up. I, look, I, I personally wouldn't do it. My wife is this crazy negotiator that I actually apologize to sales guys after she leaves. I'm like, I'm sorry you had to <laughs> you had to go through that. Um but she wins. And so what I would say is this, right? And this is my view of it. I don't, nobody's got a gun to my head to buy that vehicle. Walk out the door, right? If I'm the consumer and I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to leave. The other thing is it was totally fine for me as a consumer to come in and demand six and a half percent off. That dealer owns that vehicle. If somebody's going to pay $100,000 over sticker for the new C8 Corvette Z06, God bless them. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. If someone was like, look, I right? want that car and this is what I'll pay, yeah. then yeah, as a dealer, you go, okay, sure. Right, like, so why am I the bad guy? Because money's not I'm an issue for them, sell- apparently. Right, why am I the bad guy if I'm willing to sell somebody something at the price they're willing to pay? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so, not very true. So I'm always defending dealerships in the terms of like, oh, you, you know, you had no problem when they had to give stuff away to, to stay in business, but now that they're getting over, you, you know, you're all hurt. That, that they have the pricing power. But the other thing I would say is, so yeah, the, 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 now as a dealer, you risk, you know, you risk alienating customers and repeat buyers, but like, there's no guarantee of that either though. So take the money where you can get it. 
uh, yeah. provide a good service, easy transaction, and hopefully people will come back. But the, the thing to your original question that I would say that the, the to a dealer that doesn't want to go to the new way, um, you know, the, the thing that you're going to risk is, is also that, you know, obviously that you're going to lose buyers, but, um, you know, you, you're just not, you're not going to get the best inventory from the manufacturer and it's not going back the other way. You, you can do it maybe with your used vehicle inventory, right? You can oversupply and you don't have to deal with that, but you're going to, you're going to be overpaying for everything. There's, there's going to be, and I, the word I've been using Derek is orchestrated, right? This mm. is, none of this is random, right? This is orchestrated by the manufacturers. And what I would tell those dealers that want to go back to the old way is like, it's not free. It's not your choice, right? You're, yeah, you're not going to have the choice to say, oh, let me put 35 explorers on the lot for the 10 that I'm going to sell. It's not your choice. The manufacturer hmm. is going to be like, when you have an order for one, I'll sell you one. Or, you know, when one leaves the lot, I'll set, I'll send you another one. But that's it. So you can you can want the old way of doing things. But not only will it be, I think, detrimental to your business, um, you're not going to be in con- control of that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's you got to change with the times. I guess that's the lesson here you know, for, for a lot of these dealerships, I mean that, and they're making, you know, they're, they're making money and it's as you were explained before. Yeah. And, um, the, and the other risk I think too, is that, and I hear this a lot from people, consumers is that, um, you know, the direct sales model, right. Is, is that a threat? And I, I think it's a legitimate threat. The thing that sort of baffles me is how you mean like direct to consumer Yeah, that that i can just get it from the manufacturer like tesla the Tesla. that's what people always like say. tesla's model yeah right. and i'm going okay first of all you're paying sticker right that's what you're doing at tesla they're they're determining the price and you're just paying it yep which is what i'm saying you could do at a retailer as well um but how are you servicing these things how are you who are you calling when you need service or something, you know, you're sending an email to tesla.com, I guess, and they're going to send a flatbed out someday to fix it or take it away. It's the, at scale, the direct sales model doesn't work. And the thing that confuses me is that how consumers think that buying something direct from a manufacturer who has never retailed anything is going to be a better process than it is buying it from a retailer who's been retailing for a hundred plus years, right? We see dealerships in their fifth, sixth generation of doing this. So yeah, there's parts of the process that need to change and improve. But if you're a consumer and you think you're getting screwed by the dealership, wait till you're buying direct from the manufacturer and what they're going to try and do to you, right? Like it's just (laughs) just bizarre. There's no incentives or things like that coming from them. Yeah, if, if something costs... $3,000 $3,000 more than it tomorrow than it did yesterday. Who are you going to, you going to go to a different manufacturer and they do the same thing, right? At least you can leave a dealer and go to the other one if they have the inventory you want and whatever. So, yeah. I mean, just the idea and, and then same thing, right? Um, getting it serviced. Yeah. And people say, well, dealers will exist only as service stations and whatever. And I'm going like, yeah, good luck getting an appointment. I bought this online. Can I come in and get it fixed? They'll be like, yeah, you're at the end of the line behind all the other people that came in and actually bought their vehicle from us. From here. Right. Yeah. Right. So, sure. Yeah. So, so it's, 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 it's strange. Yeah. It's strange. And it's an interesting time in the, in the automotive industry. That's for sure. Uh, since we're talking about manufacturers, last question before we get going, do you see a particular manufacturer handling 
everything that's going on with the inventory shortage and and all that in, a, in the chip thing in a better way or a smarter way? Well, I think what you're seeing and, and the, the, the absolutely crazy out of control average transaction prices, it's just, they're just building their, look, if you have, a, and I'm not, I don't want to be conspiracy theory and on the chip shortage, but you know, to me, that's just a way of saying like, oh, we only have so many chips. We're going to put them in our most expensive, high, highest margin vehicles, right? And that's why you're mm-hmm. seeing average transaction prices be at a record. If I have, if chips are a finite thing, I'm not going to put it in my $20,000 econo box when I could put that same chip in my $67,000 full-size pickup truck, right? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so all the automakers are doing that. And again, during this process, and this isn't just a COVID thing, this has happened, you know, ideally from 2009, 2010 bankruptcy period forward, that this has been moving in this direction that we want to move up market, we want to get more of our transactions. Now, the risk that they run uh, is that you alienate the entry and move up buyers. So if I'm General Motors and my average transaction price is $53,000. I have no more Malibu. I have no more Chevy Cruze. Uh, I have no more Impala, all these things. The, the you know, out of college or move up buyer that says, well, I really only want to spend this. What those automakers are saying is that we don't have a product for you. Go buy your mm. Civic Corolla. Go get a yeah, used. Yeah, or used, yeah, used. We, when you're ready to be at $53,000, then come talk yeah, to then us. Yeah, then we got something for you. And hmm. you know, that that's that's the risk. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just saying, like, hey, this is where we want to be. This is where it makes sense for us to sell things. And I think we think of things from a consumer's perspective um, all the time. And we think like, oh, well, then you lose a sale, you lose me as a customer. And and if I'm the automaker, I'm going, but you're not a good customer. You want to buy something for nothing. I don't make much of you. Why would I waste my time on you? And we as consumers can't understand that concept that not every sale is a good sale. You know, an automaker doesn't want every unit, you know, going to somebody who doesn't want to pay for it. So it's strange for us from the consumer's perspective to see automakers actively walking away from sales. Volume for the sake of volume isn't really a thing anymore. We don't care about that. We don't care about 17 million. 13 million wildly profitable. We'll live here. We'll take that. 17.5 million where we run into bankruptcy. Well, I'm not sure what the upside of that was, right? Right, exactly. So I I think to your point, very, very different dynamic and environment in this industry. And I don't think it's merely, this is structural, right? This is not a bubble. This is not, this is decades in the making of an industry that's trying to get to where it controls, it controls pricing and it controls volume. And it can do that now because the cost structures are rationalized. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kevin Tyne and a lot of great information there. You clearly do your research, and no pun intended, because that's literally your job. You know your stuff in the automotive research realm. Uh, anything else you'd like to say before we get going? Uh, no, that was great. But, uh, you know, anytime you want to call, I'm happy to talk through stuff with you. Yeah, absolutely, because you sure do know it, and it's cool to get this kind of perspective, because a lot of times we have dealership owners and things on the show where, uh, you know, getting getting a perspective from someone like you is, is really cool. So, Kevin Tynan, thank you so much for coming on Dealer News today. Thank you. My pleasure. You got it. That was Kevin Tynan, Global Director of Automotive Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great to get his unbiased insight 
on the show to give a, you know, a different perspective of the industry. But that will do it for this episode of DNT. Make sure you follow us on social media at Dealer News Today. And also be sure to check out DCGGiving.com. It's a great way for dealers to give back to the local community and fight pediatric cancer. Again, that's DCGGiving.com. I am your host, Derek D. DerekD.com for all my stuff. Appreciate you listening, everybody. But until next time, this is Dealer News Today.